In a new book, the journalist John Hendrickson explains this tension you live with if you are a stutterer. It comes up all the time when you're making a presentation at work or in a job interview. Is it better to speak and maybe, probably, embarrass yourself? Or do you just shut down and say nothing at all? He writes about how you pick up these tricks to force out words when your speech breaks down, like wiggling your foot or bouncing your knee, and he says it's exhausting. A few years ago, Hendrickson got a lot of attention when he wrote this remarkable piece for The Atlantic about Joe Biden's stuttering. His new book is a memoir about how you make peace with the shame of stuttering, how you accept this part of yourself because, and this is an important part of the book, there really is no cure. Join us for Radio West after this. Here's an easy way to boost your monthly gift to KUER. Switch to a direct donation from your bank account. Your support won't be interrupted due to lost cards or expiration dates. And when you do switch, you'll help KUER save thousands of dollars each year by offsetting steep processing fees. Most importantly, you're strengthening your support of the essential local news and NPR programming you depend on. Make the switch today at KUER.org membership. The journalist John Hendrickson begins his new book in the green room of the cable channel MSNBC in Midtown Manhattan. It's Friday, November 22nd, 2019. And as he explains it, he's there because just the day before, he had published an article in The Atlantic about the man who had become the most famous living stutterer. Millions of people had no idea Joe Biden had stuttered all his life. He stuttered as a kid. He stutters as an older man because Biden only reluctantly talks about it, even though there were questions and jokes. Still, lots of questions, lots of jokes about his cognitive condition. Biden agreed to talk to John Hendrickson and the article took off. So here he is at MSNBC to talk about it. But Hendrickson himself stutters. And he was terrified. That article was the first time that I had ever written anything about the topic for public consumption. It contained a lot of personal elements. Just as an adult who stutters, I brought a bit of my experience into the piece. But for the previous three decades of my life leading up to that moment, I had never talked with friends or family or colleagues or anyone about this. And I had certainly never gone on TV or even done any public interviews like that. So I was terrified. And when the offer to come on popped up in my email inbox, I didn't answer it immediately. It took me a few hours. And a big part of me wanted to say no. But in that article, I'm basically asking this question of why won't Joe Biden talk about this part of himself? And I ultimately decided it would be hypocritical of me to then not talk about it as well. There's this question that Stephanie Rule asks you in the interview that you say you aren't ready for. Should it be a concern when it comes to the debate stage if, in fact, Joe Biden is facing off against President Trump? This is not an insult to the president. The president employs bully tactics. Bully tactics facing off against a stutter. What does that do? It makes you feel shame. It, it makes you want to just walk away. 
Can we talk about your response? Because you say you weren't quite ready for that. I think when you're an adult who stutters, there's always a part of you that can feel like that kid in elementary school who's either being bullied on the playground or who is living in fear of reading out loud in class or introducing yourself on the first day of a new school year. And even if you have a job and are married and have good friends, good family, all the things I have, you can enter a block and feel those old sensations that you may have felt 25 years ago, or in Biden's case, decades ago. When I was reporting out my book, I did about a hundred interviews, a mix of people who stutter, researchers, therapists, experts, people from my past, and there's a writer who stutters, who's at the New Yorker, Nathan Heller, and he talked about this a lot. I'm paraphrasing here, but he told me, it's like you're tethered to your entire history at all moments. And while that block may not be as devastating at the age of 35 as it was at the age of five, it takes you back there. And that's a hard thing to get over. But it's essential to learn how to power through those moments. You said to her that it makes you feel shame when a bully goes after you. But you say it doesn't have to be a weakness. Can just be a part of you, this thing that just exists. Seeing that this experience in many ways is a nightmare, what does it tell you to watch your body? That messaging is championed by therapists who tell clients it's okay to stutter. It's okay to be a person who stutters. You can communicate effectively while stuttering. You can focus on your eye contact, your body language, on the clarity of your message. And even if that sentence or paragraph you're saying contains blocks, repetitions, prolongations, just as long as you keep moving forward with your thoughts and keep participating in daily life, that's all that matters. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. John Hendrickson says... Since that day, he first spoke on television. He's had incredible conversations with stutterers all over the world. And and mostly he wanted to know how other people deal with it. He says he wanted to know how you make peace with this aspect of yourself you're taught to hate. We'll also hear from the researcher Courtney Bird, who tells stutterers and their families there is no cure for this. But being a successful communicator doesn't have to be defined by fluency. Hendrickson's book is called Life on Delay. Right after I published that article about Biden's life as a person who stutters, immediately from that day, I was inundated with messages, emails, letters from people who stutter all over the world. These messages often began, I've never told anybody this, but 
and then they would sometimes write 700 or a thousand words of their life story. And these just kept coming and coming and coming. And they blew my mind. I was overwhelmed and honored that total strangers were pouring their hearts out to me. And that made me think that I had potentially tapped into something and and that there was potential for a book here. Hmm. I'm in my early 30s and I've lived some life, but I don't believe that I have lived enough life to write a whole memoir from my memories and that's it. And it was very important to me to incorporate other people's perspectives and others' life experiences because those conversations taught me things about myself as well. Explain the look. What's the look? Well, if you're a person who stutters and you happen to be listening to this, then I don't have to explain the look to you at all. But if you're part of the 99% of the population who doesn't stutter, the look maybe a facial expression that you have inadvertently given a person who stutters. It's a mix of confusion, revulsion, judgment, pity. It it comes across the listener's face when that moment of stuttering begins. Because that moment is often such a surprising moment because people who stutter are kind of walking around with an invisible disability. They may walk into a classroom or an office or restaurant and they look quote unquote normal. And then the moment they begin to talk, people get confused. You say that, um, this is why stutterers drop their eyes when they speak. There are myriad secondary behaviors that accompany yeah. stuttering. It's not just movements of the mouth. It's you know, it's not just a sus sus that. It's it's often loss of eye contact. It can be jerky body movements that are a person develops to try to force out a word. It could be playing with something in your hands, you know, which I'm admittedly doing at the moment on the radio. I'm I'm talking to my cell phone back and forth through my hands because it may or may not be helping me talk smoother. Um, And that just goes to show you how complicated this whole thing is. Because even if I wrote this whole book about destigmatization and acceptance and coming to terms with something, Part of me is always trying to talk smooth as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's about the, and that's one of the things you explore. There's this sociologist you write about, Irving Goffman, who wrote this book, The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. And he, he argued that in our social interactions that we have, that we're playing this part of what you describe as being on this invisible stage, that we want people to respect us and and like us. And so every time we speak, there are stakes. (laughs) Um, We we want to earn someone's respect or we may lose it. So the stakes are incredibly high anyway in the way we present ourselves. And I guess in that sense of presentation for someone who stutters, the stakes are even that more, much more intense, I guess. They are. And people who stutter 
face discrimination when it comes to applying for jobs. You know, clear communication is often listed at the top of all job requirements for most jobs. And there's this perception out there that being a person who person who stutters means you're constantly nervous, anxious, fearful, or, or perhaps you're lying or you're untrustworthy. And beyond professional issues, it, it's challenging to ask someone out on a date. It's challenging to order an item off a restaurant menu, to pick up yeah. the telephone, to, to say hello. It's these thousand little parts of daily life that people who stutter are constantly navigating. Let's bring Dr. Burden into the conversation. You you write early on, John, that when your speech impediment appeared in the – this was the fall of 1992. You were a kid. And stuttering at that time, you say, was viewed as something to be fixed and solved and cured and you had to do it fast. Um, introduce us to Dr. Bird first because in the book you describe her a bit of as of an outlaw in her field and I want people to get a sense of who she is because she really challenges is one of these who challenges the way people think about fluency and speech and curing people. So introduce us to her first if you would. Well, f- for decades and really for centuries, pretty much all speech therapy was rooted in the goal of attaining fluency. Fluency just being a, being a fancy word for smooth speech. When you're young and your brain circuits are less developed, it can be easier to potentially rewire them and to teach a very young kid to talk smoother with certain therapy. But it's not guaranteed, not at all. And then with each passing year, it becomes less and less likely that a kid will ever reach a level of total fluency and ever talk smoothly. Yet, that antiquated type of therapy, which people call fluency shaping therapy, mm-hmm. that persists through through elementary school, middle school, high school. It persists for adults who stutter. But there are people like Dr. Courtney Bird, who runs the Blank Center at UT Austin, who has taken a totally different approach. The very first thing Dr. Bird tells her clients or the parents of young kids is there is no cure for stuttering. What Dr. Bird aims to teach these patients is that it's okay to, it's okay to stutter and that the most important thing you can do as a person who stutters is live your life and not avoid situations and not avoid picking up the telephone, not avoid going out to a restaurant because you're afraid the waiter will give you the look. But to be out there being a person who stutters in the world. Dr. Bird, tell us about how we got to that point where how speech therapy started to really focus on and the 
focus was on this, as, as John mentions, fluency shaping, because you say a lot of the stigma for stutterers begins with those moments of speech therapy. Take us through how we got to that point. I think that's where we've always been. I mean, huh. if you look into, you know, history, I mean, people would do anything. They'd cut their tongues. They would put on different devices, all, all for the hope of achieving fluency. And we have an ethical responsibility to, to provide help that actually makes a difference. The contradiction of telling someone it's okay to stutter, but then having them work towards an arbitrary reduction in their overall stuttering frequency. The impact of that is so devastating. Why do you tell patients and their families that there's no cure? What happens when a patient realizes this? I, well, let me give you the alternative. Um, what I say is, you know, as what we know right now, there is no cure for stuttering. There's no fix. This is the natural way that you talk. There are some treatments that show that you can you know, engage in activities and that can um, promote fluency. But those gains aren't any more than what we see with natural recovery. And what I want parents and children to understand is, is that stuttering is the natural way that you talk and you're going to encounter people who are you know, highly educated, who are going to treat you differently because they are ignorant and ignorant people behave ignorantly. But we're going to teach you how to navigate that so that you can feel empowered. And you can walk away from those situations, both you, the child, and the parent, and feel that everything's going to be okay. And what they typically get is they get a, you know, a, an evaluation. Um, the parents told that their child stutters. They're told to change things um, in terms of their communication with their child to promote a less stressful speaking environment. The child then goes on to elementary school, they're pulled out of their classrooms to go into a room where they're practicing over and over again to speak more fluently. They notice that they can be fluent within that clinical setting, but they can't transition that out into the classroom setting. The teachers and the SLPs in an effort to help them tell them that they're not going to call on them in class. And all of these efforts to help in the long term are doing harm because they don't have the same opportunities to develop their pragmatic skills. And I want the teachers to understand that it will take longer for them to speak and that is okay. But what's not okay is for you to not give them the same opportunity to practice so that they can develop pragmatically just as their peers. One of the things that John mentions is that you and your team there, they follow your patients to sort of get a sense of, of the effects of um, of the research, and you say that a majority of them report um, significantly lower degrees of bullying, for example, and depression and anxiety um, compared to those who have had to have these fluency shaping techniques. So, so what's the change in the attitude? Is it a, a kind of a confidence? Is it a, just a, a sense of well, I guess this is how John explains it. He says it's not just acceptance, but it's also a kind of mindfulness, I guess, about their attitude. Yes. I mean, what I would explain is what we often reference as the iceberg of stuttering, which, you know, stuttering, the overt behavior that you hear um, as you grow older, navigating the look on a regular basis and, and not knowing how to respond to the look how, um, you know, the reason behind the look, never being able to talk to anybody about the look, you, you begin to develop lots of negative feelings and reactions towards your stuttering and you de develop an iceberg. Our goal is to prevent that iceberg from ever developing. And with regards specifically to bullying and teasing, you know, it's the socially reticent child that is likely to be targeted. We're trying to help prevent these children from thinking that, you know, that they should be the last to talk, that they should avoid talking, that, in fact, they should be the first. And we hope and we're trying to get them to be the proudest. And we definitely know they can be the most effective.
Yeah. One of the things that you mention is the importance of about how we change the language. Hmm. How do we do that? Because you say we also need to learn to change what we say to ourselves. What do you mean? Well, the most primary example is, well, that was really good. Did you hear that? You didn't stutter there at all. Versus that was excellent. I really love the way you looked right at me when you were saying that. And I love the sound of your voice. I don't want you to ever stop talking. It is, again, shifting the focus away from the fluency to moving towards your communication goals and values. What is it that you want to do? And having the tools to be able to do it. I'd really like to go talk to this person on the playground, let's say if you're younger. I mean, so then what do I need to do to do it? And not having, if you stutter, being at the forefront of your mind as to whether or not you're going to make that choice is so critical. That's Courtney Bird. She's a professor of speech, language, and hearing sciences at the University of Texas at Austin. John Hendrickson is also with us. He's a senior editor at The Atlantic. His new book is called Life on Delay, Making Peace with a Stutter. We'll take a break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. Being a dependable, trustworthy news source, that's our goal at KUER. In order to meet that goal, we depend on listener contributions. Your support ensures the local and national news heard on KUER remains independent, commercial-free, and accessible for all. If you rely on our programming to stay informed, become our newest sustainer with a gift of just $5 a month. Start your monthly support at KUER.org donate. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, the journalist John Hendrickson is joining us. A few years ago, his piece in The Atlantic about Joe Biden's lifelong struggle as a stutterer caused a sensation. Now he has a memoir about his own life, trying to make peace with the shame of stuttering. His book is called Life on Delay. John, I want to ask you about something that you mentioned that comes from Dr. Bird's team And that is stressing this idea that successful communication doesn't have to be defined by fluency. And one of the things you write about is that the the team, Dr. Bird's team, focuses on these other skills, these other nonverbal skills. And I hadn't thought about it. Things like, you know, eye contact, like your posture, your body language, those also ways of communicating. Those are also ways of defining whether we're, you know, fluent, quote unquote, as as human beings. Talk a little bit about that, if you would, John. Breaking your mind out of that mold, that fluency is the only goal, the only measure of success. That's a hard lesson to unlearn. It's only in the past 10 or 20 years that kids are now receiving an alternative message, more toward destigmatization and acceptance. Mm. Like anything, if you can internalize that message as a five-year-old, as a 10-year-old, you'll be set up for a much better path in life. But a lot of people my age are trying to internalize this message as adults, and it's hard. You know, there are parts of you that want to believe it, you want to welcome it, and there are other parts of you that tell you it's it's crazy but if if you're an adult who stutters and you're trying to make peace with it i would recommend finding other adults who stutter and just talking about your experience i want to ask about I detected a couple of um, themes here. Um, 
you, you don't necessarily write about them as themes, but I, I oh, I saw a couple of threads that I thought were important. Um, love, which we'll come back to here in a moment. Um, music and art seem to be these underlying. You have these deep passions for music. You have this um, love of what seems to be art as well. At least, like, there's this moment, for example, a class project um, when you were um, a kid. And a classmate had written about, I mean, you also are a baseball fan. You were a big Cal Ripken fan, um, Jackie Robinson too. But this this classmate had written in this class project, and you found you found this um, document you write about. Um, and they this person wrote, if he can't play, um, John wants to be a sports writer. If not that, he'd like to be an actor, someone like the next Tom Hanks. And you mentioned having to stop and reread that line and just because, as you say, a stutterer, dreaming of becoming an actor sounds really counterintuitive. But you also mentioned there's a kind of logic to it. Talk a little bit about this moment, not just the logic to it, which is really interesting, but but the role of music and art um, as a theme in your life. That passage you just referenced was from a fifth grade homework assignment. Yeah. My sweet mom has kept all my old homework and class projects and family photos, everything, and put it in a box in our basement. And as I began working on this book, my mom gave me that box and I, I dug through it and it was like a portal to another time but as you said it's counterintuitive and yet totally logical that a person who stutters would want to become an actor there are loads of of actors who grew up as people who people who stuttered emily blunt a person who I interview in yeah. the book yeah. julia Roberts, Samuel L. Jackson, there's many examples. And some of them have said that getting into character, being on stage, helped them lose themselves and almost forget about their stutter, although it's not that scientifically simple. The biological answer is that recitation relies on a different neural pathway than the one we use in conversation, <laughs> as does singing. And there are loads of musicians who either were or are people who stutter. Elvis Presley, Bill Withers. Kendrick Lamar, Ed Sheeran, Noel Gallagher of Oasis. It goes on and on and on. Music has always been my salvation. I love karaoke. I love getting up there and belting out, embarrassing myself at a karaoke bar because I, I never stutter when I sing, I never even worry about the prospect of it when I sing. It's again, a different neural pathway. But beyond all that, the rhythm and the escape of music, it was, it was always an oasis for me in the same way writing was. Let's talk about the Joe Biden story. Early in the book, of course, you described the article that really seemed to kind of break it open for you. you, you it changed your life. You, you mentioned how you had spent all of those years hiding from, you know, the S word. You had even spent paragraphs avoiding the act of typing stutter. But now you had landed this assignment to write about Joe Biden's own struggle with a stutter. 
and how, as you put it, you know, tens of millions of people who didn't know Joe Biden had made it to that point of his life, you know, a candidate for president at the time with this stutter. And you land this assignment, which was a it was a pitch that you yourself had had made. And I wanted to ask you about, you know, you're only about two weeks into your job at The Atlantic. You were new. An editor asked if you had any ideas, you know, evergreen ideas for the magazine. And this is when you mentioned the Joe Biden part. T- talk a little bit about um, b- before people realized Biden had the stutter. What were you seeing in the way they talked about the way he communicated? Lots of plenty of really lots of jokes about the way Joe Biden talked, I guess. What were you seeing in that? Lots of jokes, you know, there are super cuts in the montages on the Mm -hmm. Daily Show and on Fox News and elsewhere. People immediately offering armchair diagnoses, like he's got dementia, or all sorts of brain issues. People who are not doctors just throwing out these accusations. Being a person who stutters, I knew that Biden grew up as a person who stutters himself, and he had occasionally talked about it every now and then. He had occasionally appeared at galas or events. It was occasionally in an old article about him from previous eras of his life, but it was by no means front and center. And it was certainly not common popular knowledge in the way that other parts of his life were. And while Biden manages his disorder and has managed it his whole adulthood, and I think has managed it well, as he's gotten older, his lingering stutter, it has come out more and more. And the manifestations of it really are those secondary behaviors, the <laughs> loss of eye contact, certain body movements, word switching to a avoid a block or a prolongation. It was quickly clear to me as a person who stutters that there were moments where Biden was engaged with these behaviors. And then I talked to other people who stuttered and I talked to therapists and experts and they agreed. But because this is a disorder that affects only 1% of the population, it's it's always been misunderstood, mischaracterized, misjudged. And it, it's been amazing to see the topic of, topic of stuttering get more attention over these past three or four years. Yeah. Well, you talked to him, of course, about it, and it's such an interesting part of the book. We don't need to spend too much time with with it. I think people should go to the book to hear. It just was interesting, the conversation with him that, you, you know, you you sensed you, – you mentioned how you were blocking – um, when you were talking with him on on every word, and but but one thing about the conversation with him was that, as you say, he seemed to be holding something back, you know, keeping some things close to his chest, and you realized that he didn't want to admit he still stutters. Um, and even now, I was you know, there's a piece in the New York Times about the preparation in the White House for the State of the Union address and a reference in a New York Times piece that that, that the president sometimes frames his struggle with his stutter in the past tense. What, what do you make of that? When I interviewed him, I was expecting him to say, yes, I still stutter. And I'm sitting across from him you know, two feet away for an hour and we're talking and the minutes are ticking by and you get past the 30 minute, 35 minutes 
in 40 minutes. And it dawns on me, he's not going to say it. Mm-hmm. And I left his office that day mad. I was mad at myself for not getting it, for not getting getting the big quote. You know, I was mm-hmm. mad at him for what I felt like he wasn't being forthright with me. And I felt like a failure. And about a week later, when I was discussing all this with my editor, my editor asked, well, why doesn't he want to talk about it? And that changed everything. And that became what I think is a more interesting question to ask. And so I'm trying to answer that question in that article. And in doing so, I'm reflecting on the ways in which I haven't wanted to talk about it at all. And I hadn't, I never written about it till that article. Yeah. But the whole thing, and I just want to say one more thing that that was late summer 2019. Since then, Biden has come a little bit closer. He hasn't quite said, yes, I still stutter, but he's come a little bit closer every now and then. And there have been these moments, such as at the 2020 DNC, in which that young man, Braden Harrington, gave a video address Mm. right before Biden gave his acceptance speech. That was kind of a... Uh, a clever acknowledgement. Um, and, and there have been other moments like that, certain town halls, certain interviews, et cetera. But the f- fact that Biden could reach the highest, highest levels of f- fame and power and be one of the most recognizable people on planet Earth and be an old man and not want to talk about this part of himself, mm. that pretty much proves that these lessons that we learn as kids, that we internalize as kids, remain with us for the rest of our lives. John Hendrickson. His book is Life on Delay, Making Peace with a Stutter. We'll take another break and come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. One of the things that you can count on from KUBR is that we've got your back when it comes to reporting the news. And one of the things that KUBR counts on to keep it all going? Contributions from listeners. One way that you can help is to donate a vehicle that you no longer need. It's free, it's easy to do, and it could be worth hundreds of dollars in support. The process is simple. Learn more and get started today at KUER.org slash vehicle. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. When his stuttering first appeared as a kid, John Hendrickson says it was seen as something to be fixed and cured. His book is called Life on Delay – Making peace with a stutter. Let's talk about Liz, your wife. You write about how when you met her, uh, first met her, you really opened up to her immediately about your study. Something you said that stutter, something you said that you you had never really done. And then you mentioned how the look on her face was, as you describe it, neutral, totally neutral. Because she too, as she told you, has a thing. She, she has dystonia, this, this neuromuscular disorder. And, and you shared this thing in common. And as she put it, your bodies, you had bodies that betrayed you. Meeting her changed my life. I don't view my life as before and after confronting my stutter. I view it as before and after meeting Liz. <laughs> that expression of 
neutrality that Liz gave me when I talked to her about being a person who stutters on our first date, that meant more than you can ever know. Because being a person who stutters, but, but really being a person with any sort of disorder or disability, reactions are often polarizing. <laughs> People are either mean about it or they're overly positive and they may baby you, coddle you, pity you, you know, that feeling of getting a little pat on the head. Hmm. Neither of those options are great. Neither of those make you feel whole. But that neutrality is beautiful and powerful. It was, in her eyes, just another part of me, like the fact mm -hmm. that I have brown hair, brown eyes. Yeah. That changed everything. Yeah. There's this great story you tell about meeting Liz's family for the first time. They're Jewish, and she wanted you to join the family for, for Passover. And so you're right about reading the, you know, the Passover text, the Haggadah, with the family. And basically, for those who don't know, every, everyone, you're sitting around the dinner table and everyone reads in turns, you know, going counterclockwise. And there are a few, you know, um, rounds to this. And you write about this. You write about struggling with the reading, but the, her family, they're, they're patient. No one interjects. They just sit and listen and the reading goes around the table. Your turn comes up a second time. Same. Nobody interjects. People are patient. And then a third and then a fourth and then a fifth. And, and you write about how your fluency didn't improve. It was still difficult for you. But this is how you put it in the book. You say you just tried to let yourself stutter. Ex explain what you meant there. What was what was happening there? That first time I met her family, that Passover, it was about six months before I interviewed Joe Biden and before I got rolling on that article. And so given that it was before all that, being a person who stutters was something I was keeping inside at that point. I had mm. yet to write the story. I'd yet to go on TV. I'd yet to confront it. And I hadn't read out loud like that since high school. I don't know, wow. even earlier. Wow. Wow. I had frequently tried to get out of that kind of reading out loud anyway in high school. And I had avoided this public speaking class in college and nearly didn't graduate. So, <laughs> you know, in the weeks leading up to that meeting of the, of the parents and the family and knowing I'd have to read out loud, the amount of dread I felt was just completely overwhelming. And it was like, it was all consuming. <laughs> and Liz and her mom very sweetly offered, they said, you don't have to read. There's no pressure. It's perfectly fine to skip. And a very large part of me wanted to. Yeah. But then I said to myself, well, if she really is the one, and if we get married and we're back here next year at this Passover table and we keep coming year after year and then we have our own family and we keep this tradition going, am I just going to keep skipping in perpetuity? Hmm. And that question 
pushed me to actually read that night. And it was hard and it was exhausting and it was embarrassing, but it was okay. That's the biggest takeaway is that it was okay. So acceptance requires a kind of sense of love. <laughs> that was the other thing that kept coming to me. This love's a big part of this, maybe. I don't know. Is that right? Love is absolutely a big part of this. And when I think about acceptance, or I think about the the subtitle, Making Peace with a Stutter, making peace with something is different than curing it or overcoming it, mm-hmm. conquering it. Making peace is an acknowledgement that this thing exists and this is part of you and it will be part of you for the rest of your life. And you may not like this thing, but it'll be there. And the best you can do is keep living your life with it and to not allow it to hold you back, just to keep going. That sounds like a platitude. That sounds like a simple message on a poster. But it's harder than it sounds. It's hard knowing that the telephone's going to ring and you're going to have trouble saying hello. But if you can get to a point of I'm going to answer the phone no matter what, I'm going to have the conversation, I'm going to go to that restaurant, I'm going to order the food I want, that's what matters. John Hendrickson and Courtney Bird. Thank you both very much. Thank you so much for having us. It was an honor. It was. Thank you so much. John Hendrickson, he's a senior editor at The Atlantic. His book is Life on Delay, Making Peace with a Stutter. We also heard from Courtney Bird. She's a professor of speech, language, and hearing sciences at the University of Texas at Austin. Radio West is a production of KUER. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter at Radio West. The program is produced by Benjamin Bombard and Tim Slover. Carrie Watson is our executive producer. I'm Doug Fabrizio.